The Watch is the latest and the greatest in pop culture from best friends Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald. Join them as they discuss TV, movies, music, and much more. Check out The Watch on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's New York, New York, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays. And same game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and Bet Live. Same game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer. Is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 100 Gambler or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. All righty, let's roll, baby. Welcome in Friday edition, early morning, late night edition, depending on where you may be. It's actually... A late Thursday evening for yours truly. Out here on the magical mystery tour out west where we were in Vegas. Then we spent a night in San Diego. Now we're in Manhattan Beach, California. But you know what remains the same? The fact that the New York Yankees keep rolling. And that the New York Yankees keep winning. They're finding new and innovative and excruciating ways to keep finding victories on the ledger. But when you win 12 straight games, you got a 12-pack of victories. Not a baker's dozen, as I uh, prematurely tweeted. Got a little too excited. Got a little too antsy after that ninth inning as you watch Chapman make you sweat a little bit. But at least you see Aroldis Chapman finish the save as opposed to the other night where he's limping in a dugout and you need Wandy Peralta to bail out his ass. But I've seen so many games for the Yankees in Oakland over the years. Not necessarily in the postseason. Because remember, the Yankees did go in 2000 and beat the A's in a game five. In 2001, they were down 0-2 and rallied back and won game three and game four in Oakland. So they've had success in October in the postseason. But if you look over the last, I don't know, eight to nine years, the Yankee record in Oakland is awful. And it feels like every single time they play games out in the Bay Area, it's a struggle. And that's why when I was watching this game, and I'm dialed in on the West Coast. It's amazing. Even a late night West Coast game, it's still, it just flows perfectly. It's beautiful. I don't get to take advantage of this often, but it was absolutely fantastic. Yankees get up 6 nothing. Stanton goes Yahtzee. Gallo, I wish I put Gallo in instead of Anthony Rizzo in our FanDuel odds boost. Of course, but no cigar. You don't get any brownie points for narrowing down one or two and going with the wrong choice. It went Anthony Rizzo over Joey Gallo, and we whiffed on that one. But neither here nor there. Yankees were up six to nothing. I still didn't feel overly comfortable about this game because they've had too many games like this. I've seen too many instances in Oakland where games go and get ugly. That happened Thursday night because Jamison Tyon did not have it. Jamison Tyon did not have command. Jamison Tyon did not have control. Jamison Tyon is walking the ballpark and doesn't give you the sort of length that he has over his last few starts. 
Is that a product of too much work? I know a lot of people are trying to draw that conclusion. Guy who hasn't pitched in two years. I don't necessarily see it that way. To me, it's a bad start. I need to see a lot more in the negative ledger from Jamison Tyon for me to say, oh, he's about to hit that wall. Pitch like that next time out and the following time out, and we can have that conversation. I'm not ready to do it right now. But when the Yankees yuck up a 6 the lead and this game is tied, did you have confidence they were winning the game? I did not. Especially in the eighth inning when they have the bases loaded and one out. Brett Gardner, who had homered earlier in the game, has a 3-1 count. Take a damn strike. With the way you've swung the bat this year, Brett Gardner, let that count go full against a guy who's not throwing strikes. He pops up. They don't score. And I'm like, they're not winning this game. But credit the aggressiveness of the Yankees. Tyler Wade runs for Anthony Rizzo. Two-out walk. Wade steals. Aaron throw. Gets to third base. The Yankees are running so much more than they did in the first half of this year. So much more. That's what we speak to in the idea of playing with a sense of urgency. They're not sitting back and waiting for somebody to go and deliver a long home run. No, they're saying, you know what? Let's try and win this game right here with a single. And Aaron Judge, listen, we've taken plenty of calls over the narrative and the idea that he's not clutch. And I've even brought that up on a few occasions. Judge over the last month has been very clutch for the Yankees. That's a big hit. Two outs, ninth inning, tie game. That's a fabulous win for the Yankees. 12 straight games. They're now 23 games over the 500 mark. And think about this with Oakland. They now have a six-game lead over the Oakland A's in the loss column. They're three up on Boston for wild card number one. They are five and a half up on the Oakland A's. The amazing thing is the Yankees have been unable to gain ground on the Tampa Bay Rays who just continue to be an absolute machine. And that's why I think when it's all said and done, the Yankees are not winning this division. But if you're the Yankees, look, sooner or later, this winning streak is going to come to an end. That's fine. Can they find a way to split this series? I'm not even greedy. With the way they are playing right now, split this series in Oakland, take the status quo, and then run through what will be a very soft week coming up after Anaheim. I think it's Anaheim for three. Then you got the lowly Orioles on the schedule a bunch. Listen, the Yankees are playing fabulous, fabulous baseball. And quite frankly, you wish this team was rolling into the month of October right now. Isn't it amazing? You thought the Yankees were going to have to, like, squeeze every last ounce out of this team to get into October. Season would end today. The Yankees are comfortably in. It's crazy how these narratives can flip and how they can change. And speaking of narratives flipping and changing, I mean, my goodness, the Mets are just a total nightmare. You know, I saw Sean Fennessy earlier in the day, who is one of the most disgruntled, beaten down Met fans that you're going to find. And Fennessy was basically like, yeah, I'm ready for Zach Wilson. I'm ready for Robert Sala. I'm like, I can't blame you, buddy. Even though your football team is probably only going to win five or six games, I can't blame you. The Mets in this stretch of games where they had the Giants and the Dodgers, and we talked about this quote-unquote litmus test that you were going to go through. The Mets went one in five against the Giants. And the Mets went one in six against the Dodgers. That is how you take a season and basically flush it immediately right down the toilet. I don't care if the Mets have games with the Washington Nationals and the Miami Marlins coming up. They are 61 and 66. 61 and 66. Two and eight in their last 10 games and seven and a half games behind the Atlanta Braves. Seven and a half. When the that's like a month and a half ago, I had like a four or five game lead. They lost some excruciating games, though. Excruciating games. Think about the one last night. Rojas inexplicably taking Taiwan Walker out of the game when he is cruising. Why? Because there were a couple of defensive mishaps, and all of a sudden you're going to penalize your starting pitcher for that? Sure enough, bullpen comes into the game. Boom. They yuck it right up. And then the narrative and the storyline around the Mets, it feels like every single day is the fact that this team cannot score runs. Two runs. Two runs. You think you're going to win that way? Good luck. Lindor has come back, has not sparked the team. Baez, all right, he's had a couple of hits. He's also had some hideous, inexcusable, disgusting type of swings. 
The only guy that pound for pound has really brought it in this stretch over the last two and a half weeks is Alonzo. Alonzo has come to play. What bothers me, though, is I hear Alonzo after the game, and I want to get you the exact quote, because I saw this quote earlier. It, like, blew my mind, blew my mind that this is what I'm hearing from Pete Alonzo, who's a positive guy, who's a real likable dude. I'm a big fan of his. But for Pete after the game, they basically say, the next five weeks are going to be the most important time of the year for us. Pete, what about the last month, bro? What about this stretch of games where you let the Braves back in it, now they've passed you and then some. You got swept by the Phillies. You've gotten embarrassed and humiliated by the Dodgers and the Giants. What's going to change between now and the end of this year? And then you have this report regarding Noah Syndergaard. So Noah Syndergaard's trying to come back off his injury. Tommy John surgery, trying to get back for the last month of the year. Basically, he's telling people, they're not letting me throw off-speed pitches because they want me to, you know, take it easy with my arm. Well, hold on a second. That's what the team's telling Noah Syndergaard. He's expressing that, and yet you don't have that coming from the manager? That lack of communication was supposed to be a thing of the past. That lack of communication was supposed to be an old way of the Mets doing business, not this new way of the Mets doing business. How's that possible? Syndergaard's coming back. Everybody's got to be on the same page. Pitcher, training staff, manager, pitching coach, owner, the whole damn shebang has got to be on the same page. You can't have it where a guy is like, well, this is what I'm doing. This is what they're telling me to do. And then the manager doesn't know. That's embarrassing. It's absolutely embarrassing. I'll tell you what's more embarrassing, though. The Mets play against the Giants and the Dodgers. They look like and feel like a team that does not belong. How can I talk you into optimistic vibes over the final month of the year? I, I, I got news for you. It ain't pretty. The Mets will probably be playing out the string over the final two weeks of the year. And I'm not going out on much of a limb by saying this. I think for... 98%. I could be off. You guys can glad me, girls. Correct me if I'm wrong. 98% of the fans who listen to this podcast are ready for the NFL season. Like, I'm ready for the NFL season, but I'm giddy right now about my baseball team. On the other side of town, it's like, well, just put me out of my misery. Enough is enough. It blows my mind how these narratives have changed on a dime. If you would have told me at the All-Star break, if you would have told me at the trade deadline, we'd have one team really good shape to make the postseason at like 90, 95%. Fangrass, playoff odds, all that stuff. You check it now. And that team would be the Yankees, not the Mets. Seem like crazy talk, considering the nature of the NL East. I'm not getting suckered back in if I'm a Met fan. Go win like 11 in a row and maybe, maybe you could sucker me in if you give me a streak like the Yankees just did. Going like 5-2 and two against the Marlins and the Nationals or let's say like 9-3, and three, it's not good enough. Not with the way they've played over the last month. So we'll welcome in Warren Sharp, who is as good a numbers guy as you're going to find. And he kills it. He's doing stuff for the ringer. He's got sharp football. He's here, there, everywhere. And I wanted to get a sense from Sharp who the numbers guys are all over this year. And listen, I like to consider myself an analytical type of dude. I do. But you're going to have to see if the analytics and the crazy JJ brain are on the same sort of wavelength when it comes to some of these NFL season totals, futures, and all that good stuff. Uh, voicemails, and it is late, by the way. So if you left a voicemail at 2 in the morning, I love you. You are fabulous. You are fantastic because we had a late night of Yankee baseball if you're on the East Coast. 917-382-1151. That's your number to find us here at New York, New York. 917-382-1151. We will have a green room. I don't know when yet. I'm kind of trying to figure it out. It will either be on Saturday at some point Maybe while I'm at the airport, there's a distinct possibility of that being the case. 
Maybe we do one on Sunday before the show. I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure it out. Probably on Saturday. But voicemails. So, Rudy, let's hit him. Let's hit him hot. You know, Jays, it's 1.30 in the morning. The Yankees pulled out a great win against the Oakland Athletics. It was looking like another House of Horrors game. But, no, we pulled it out. Great ninth inning from Chapman. And, you know, I'm feeling myself. So, I was surprised that this didn't come up on the Tuesday episode, so I figured I'd bring it up tonight. Did you hear your boss, old Bill from L.A., he had a greed, an anti-Yankee tirade in his Sunday episode. And you know, Jage, I didn't know we still had property in his brain. You would think that after all the success that Boston sports teams have had in the 21st century, that we would have been evicted by now. But no, no, we still live rent-free in old Bill from L.A.'s dome. And you know, I'm thinking of doing some remodeling. Maybe the kitchen, maybe I'll add a breakfast nook. Who knows, but I'm glad to know that anytime I can move back into my old place and Bill from L.A.'s and all of the Boston fans' heads. What a night. 12 games in a row. Let's go, Yankees! I love the giddiness, and I'll take it a step further. So, I happen to hear our old buddy, our old pal, Bill from Los Angeles's podcast from, uh, what was it, Sunday night or Monday? I don't know. Whenever I was heading to the airport, and there was a sense of hostility. There was certainly a bitterness in the tone of his voice surrounding the demise of his beloved Boston Red Sox and the rise of my beloved New York Yankees. And, you know, like in Star Wars, the hate is swelling. That's the way I felt. I was like, holy moly, the hate, the hate, the hate is swelling from Bill in Los Angeles. Now, I am not going to talk too much crap yet because, listen, it is very, very possible that the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox are playing in a wild card game that will drive a whole lot of us to drink that first week in October. Like, there is a very, very good chance that happens. So for any of us to be talking all sorts of smack when your future and your season can be decided in one game, I am going to tread lightly on that. But I am happy to know with all of the success and all of the fame and all of the fortune and just the, the brilliance of my boss's career that the New York Yankees can still check a nerve and that the New York Yankees can still rub Mr. Simmons the wrong way. And I could not believe, and I got to ask Bill about this, he would trade no Red Sox titles for the next 10 years if it means... Yankees don't win for another dozen or another decade. Dozen, decade, same crap. Close enough. That's surprising. Clearly. Let's keep kicking us while the Yankees are quote-unquote down. Down from a World Series standpoint. Winning season, they'll have another one. Which continues to be one of the more remarkable achievements you've seen in sports in a long, long time. Yankees have not had a losing season since 1992, and that streak will continue yet another year. Beautiful. Wasn't sure if that was going to be the case in late June. Was not necessarily sure. Couldn't be happy to be wrong. And how about Boone, by the way, showing you a little fire? Boone, I I'll give him this. When he gets thrown out of a game, he gets his money's worth. From the savages in the box to couple of the other tirades we've seen from Booney. Listen, he makes some decisions that will make me absolutely insane. That said, a little fire from the manager. Brilliant effort from the team. Life is A-OK -okay in Yankee Land. Whether you're in New York or California right about now. A-OK. -okay. Who's next? JJ, how are you, brother? It's Tommy from Long Island here. First of all, love hearing you on with Fleegs on uh, on the fan. We miss your voice on the fan overnight. Uh, it's a treasure to hear you come back with Fleegs. But listen, I got a question for you, bud. I sit here and I watch as uh, Gio Urshela grounds into a uh, inning-ending ground out with the base loaded in a 6-6 game. You know, I got a question. What do you think is the biggest house of horrors for the Yankees? And I got three choices for you. 
is it Toronto, is it Tampa, or is it Oakland? And for me, it's Oakland. And here's why. Since the year 2000, in Oakland, the Yankees are 41 and 43 when we play in that bandbox of a crap hole that they call a stadium. When we play them in New York, we're 51 and 34. So I don't know if that's the biggest one for you, but it sure is for me. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, but playing out there scares the goddamn crap out of me. Love you, bro. Stay well. All the best. I can understand that. The Yankees have not played well in Oakland at all. Um, Tampa, though, and you threw them in there, they're the best team of the bunch. So I think that's what you kind of got to differentiate there. Is it the idea of just playing on the road and what is, quote-unquote, the biggest house of horrors? I still think it's Tampa. Like, I get haunted when I see the Yankees playing at Tropicana Field. I'm not going to have good vibes if they're playing at Tropicana Field in the postseason in a couple of months. Toronto has been sneaky, low-key, a major problem for the Yankees since, like, 2013 or 14. The Yankees have not played well north of the border. They actually haven't played north of the border the last year and a half. They're going to in September because of all the COVID stuff and everything that's been going on. But I would probably say Tampa, Oakland, Toronto, in that order. And Fenway recently has not been kind of the Yankees. They've not been kind at all. It's weird, though, because the Yankees either dominated Fenway or they get smoked at Fenway. 18, they got smoked. 19, they played great. 20, they played great. And this year so far, they've gotten smoked. That's why you the Yankees play that wild card game at home. Bronx crowd, bodega rocking, 50,000, 48,000 strong in Garrett Cole on the mound. And a team that's built for that ballpark, you want that game at home. Last but not least, who do we got? Hey, JJ. Sean from Long Island. Thanks so much for taking the call. You know, I like to stay positive whenever I can as a sports fan. And I know that no player should ever be judged by you know, when they're doing their worst. But this Lindor thing, I just can't believe it's almost September now and we're still feeling this way about the guy. You know, I know hindsight's twenty twenty. I, I will make that trade 100 times out of 100. I'm just wondering your thoughts hypothetically now. Where would the contract negotiations be if the Mets were just patient on this? You know, it seemed like the deadline at the beginning of the year has to get it done, has to get it done. If you shell out the $325 million, but, you know, we know Steve Collins got deep pockets. But I'm just wondering, hypothetically, where are those negotiations be right now? Because this year has just been an, oh, my goodness, um, big-time alarm for me as a fan, um, just worrying about what might come of this. I know, you know, it's a tough year, and all the newcomers in New York have their struggles sometimes. But just, you know, Wednesday night against San Fran, popping up the first pitch in the bottom of the ninth, and the kind of laughing his way to the dugout, it's just, Really, really off-putting uh, the see as a fan. I'm just wondering, hypothetically, where do you think the contract negotiations would be with Lindor if they hadn't been so quick to go out that money at the start of the season? Just talk a little bit about that. Thanks so much, JJ. Take care. Sean, if I'm Francisco Lindor, I'm counting my lucky stars. I got that $300-plus million from the Mets. Because if he was going into free agency right now, think about what would be looming over his head. The idea that he had a subpar 2020 season by his standards that he's had a rotten and vile and miserable 2021 where he's hit 220, he hasn't hit for a whole lot of power, and Tabuti's missed a whole lot of time. Lindor would probably be getting half of the contract. Half of the contract that he ended up getting from the Mets. Timing's everything. Give him credit. Took advantage. The Mets made the trade. They were desperate to have him. And... Who faulted the Mets on that trade? Francisco Lindor has been a top-notch player basically ever since he started playing for the Cleveland Indians. Now, Lindor will go one of two ways because I want to take you back to Carlos Beltran. Carlos Beltran got off to a very slow start with the Mets. His first year, not nearly as bad as Lindor's has been, but it was not good by Beltran's standard. Came back the following year and was insane in 2006. Was a legitimate MVP candidate. I'm not ruling that out for a guy like Lindor. But if Lindor now next year is going to go give you 240 with like 18 homers and 70 RBIs, you know what Mets fans are going to be saying? This is Bayerga. 
and this is Alomar all over again. That's what they're going to be saying. I'm not willing to do that after one year. After two years, then it's fair. Then it's reasonable to discuss. So far, Steve Cohen's first year in owning the team, and maybe he's got to clean house and do things his way. Louis Rojas not exactly inspiring a whole lot of confidence, but let's be fair. This is not a great team. This is not a great team. Zeal yesterday on the postgame was fabulous and killing him. And the idea of having a feel for the game and watching the way that Taiwan Walker was pitching. Like, I, I, I respected that commentary from Todd. The other thing you got to acknowledge, though, if you're doing the postgame, the Mets have not hit at all. They don't score runs. It's every single night. It's going two and three runs a game. One run a game. You're not going to win that way. It's not rocket science. But you, you, they had three guys in this lineup. Conforto, McNeil, and Smith, who have been well below what you thought they were going to be. You've gotten nothing out of Lindor. McCann hasn't hit. It's been a bad lineup. It's been a bad lineup all damn year. So you wonder why the Mets are in the position that they're in. It starts with this. It ends with this. They can't hit. Sometimes it's really that simple. So I want to see if the sharp analysis is on par with the JJ analysis. Are we going to be locking step, handicapping this NFL season? And I cannot wait to start handicapping this NFL season. Like week one, I'm not going to lie. I took a couple more peeks at those lines. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to rock. But Warren Sharp, Sharp Football, Ringer, NBC Sports, man of many talents. He's coming up next. Ooh, hold up. Smell test. Go ahead. Sniff those pits. Now, your bits. Feet, toes, come on. Could be fresher, right? It's all good. Old Spice Total Body Deodorant Spray is gentle enough to use all over your body, giving you 24-7 lasting freshness with daily use from pits to toes and down below. So every smell test gets a... (sighs) Shop for Old Spice Total Body Deodorant. So, with us being now a couple weeks away from week one, let's welcome in a guy who has put together this, like, comprehensive guide, numbers, analysis, all of these sort of metrics that we need in order to go and dominate the best that we can Week in and week out. I mean, listen, I'm going to embarrass myself plenty enough picking NFL games. So sometimes I do need a little numbers to help me out. So let's welcome in Warren Sharp, Sharp Football, NBC Sports, SharpFootballAnalysis.com. Warren, are you ready for week one? I feel like it's a couple weeks away, but like it's so close, dude, I can taste it. Yeah, it feels like a long time coming, but it also seems like it's coming so quickly. I mean, this offseason has been a lot more enjoyable than last year's offseason. Let's just say that we've got to see some of these preseason games and get a look at the teams a little bit better. But uh, it definitely is coming very quickly. So now's the time to get ready for it, for sure. For your analysis, do you put any stock in what you see in the preseason? I do. Um, I want to see quarterbacks that are actually playing look good. We've seen so many of these quarterbacks not take any snaps this preseason. And to me, that's not the end of the world. Um, you want to keep these guys safe and healthy and ready for an extended season. This is a season unlike any other. We've got 17 games that all these teams are playing. So I could see why you might not want to play certain guys, but, um, you know, some of these guys, like, I want Daniel Jones to shake off some rust. I don't think he deserves to not have to play at all during the preseason. Um, I want to see when a guy like Sam Darnold has switched teams. You familiar with him from his time up in New York with Adam Gase there. But I want to see what he looks like in the offense of the Carolina Panthers. I just don't want to roll the dice to we see week one. And for that reason, you know, he played one drive, I think, in his first game. I want to see him get on the field a little bit more. So I take stock into evaluating you know, what is being delivered to me on the field. But I also know I could tell you from talking to different coaches and coordinators that 
some of the stuff that these guys are doing from a game planning perspective, you can't take too much stock in. I mean, I was very critical of some of the decisions that uh, a couple of different teams did from a, you know, not going for it and just punting the ball away or kicking field goals when they should have been going for it perspective. And I was critical publicly on Twitter about it and got a call from the offense coordinator saying that, uh, you know, this is why they were doing that. They wanted to look at certain things. So that does happen. And in addition, there's other teams that I know are very intelligent that I talked to some of their coordinators that were calling overextended amounts of run plays, for example, that they would never do during the course of the regular season, but they wanted to just put some stuff on tape that's going to screw up some other coordinators. They wanted to evaluate the run game a little bit more. Um, so, yeah, for, there are certain things you do need to take with a grain of salt. You know, when I look into my season totals and when I look into how I'm going to play the over-unders for the year, I need to believe in the coaching staff. And you mentioned something just a moment ago, Warren, that's so important to me. The idea of these teams coaching and playing to win, nothing drives me more insane Fourth and short, and I see a team punting when they should be going for it. Kicking a long field goal when they should be going for it. That, like, added incentive element, whatever you want to call it, of aggressiveness, it's exactly the sort of thing that I want in teams that I'm supporting throughout the course of the year. I know you vent that frustration, too, as you just alluded to on Twitter. Warren, I hate this. Nothing that drives me more insane than a fourth and short. I see a delay game and they're sending a punting team and a field goal unit out. Drives me to drink. Oh, I look, that should never happen in the preseason, number one. And, and number two, I can tell you that while the coach might call me and say what he'd said, I also know that you know, their coaching staff does not have a history of being the most precise and exact about making the right decisions during the regular season. So they could try to blame it all. We wanted to evaluate X or Y, and we this is why we did that. But you know, I really think that they're probably going to end up making those same types of mistakes during the course of the regular season. And then you have a guy uh, like we had up in uh, Detroit where first down and second down, they're throwing the ball down at the end zone, and they end up losing the game as a result of terrible clock management um, when they should have just run the ball, drained the clock, and kicked a, a game-winning field goal. And, you know, their coach comes out afterwards and basically tries to make excuses. Oh, we're trying to look at a few different things. And so I wanted to do this or that. That head coach is not calling the offensive plays. The, the offensive coordinator is the one who's calling those plays. And that was Anthony Lynn. And I just think that that entire coaching staff is well known for botching games. And I think they're going to continue to botch games during the regular season. And I think you can blame it on the fact that you're experimenting in the preseason. The reality is, I think some of these guys just don't get it. They just don't understand how to win games. Games. Flip it to the other side, a team that would be right up your alley, of course, is John Harbaugh and the Baltimore Ravens. 19 straight wins in the preseason, dating back years and years. This is a team that also gets it done during the regular season. This is a team that has built a culture and an identity upon making good decisions, winning games, and there's no point in diverging from that during the preseason and then trying to get back into that same thought process for week one. Might as well just keep it all the way through the preseason, and, and that's why I respect the Baltimore Ravens and their staff a lot. Okay, we're trying to handicap and figure out worst team in the NFL. You think the front runner should be the Detroit Lions? I think that the Detroit Lions are going to struggle a ton. I mean, they're up in the running with the Houston Texans, obviously. The thing about Detroit is I think they do have a better quarterback, and I think they do have a better offensive line. I do think that they will have a better run game. So from those three reasons, I think this is a team that could be in tighter games more frequently than the Houston Texans. The issue, though, is the Houston Texans, you know, they have more vets. They've signed a lot more players. They've made a lot more moves this offseason. They could brought in so many, I don't know how you could describe them. Um, like, you know, imagine like a hired gun in the wild, wild west, and you're not going after and getting like a really good gunslinger. You're getting like a B-grade gunslinger who shows up half drunk most of the time, and you just hire a whole team of those guys and like try to go rob banks with all these guys that are terrible at what they're trying to do. That's what the Houston Texans have done. They've paid a lot of free agents to come in on one-year deals, but they're not very good free agents for the most part. Um, and I don't know how those guys are going to coalesce, but I do know that, that the vision that they're in is much easier than what the Detroit Lions are playing in in the NFC North. So um, 
it's really hard. I, I'm almost like flip a coin as to which one is is going to be the worst. But I and I do think both coaching staffs kind of stink. I think the staff in Houston is completely old school. They obviously have already admitted they're not going to use analytics. Some of the quotes that uh, their head coach came out with were like, I'm just going to go with my gut on different things. Like you can't really count on them to win games um, that are tight, but it's not like I have a lot of confidence in Anthony Lynn up in Detroit either. Giants going to the year. Vegas odds them as a third place team. Their total is at seven. Some places you might find it worn at seven and a half. I have questions about the offensive line. I have major questions about the quarterback. I think Washington is a more well-rounded team. I think Dallas is far more explosive and far more prolific, even though they are an absolute joke on defense. But, I mean, probably nowhere to go but up for the Cowboys on defense, considering how bad they were a year ago. Are you glass half full, glass half empty when it comes to the 2021 Giants? I'm glass half empty primarily because... I have little confidence in your offense coordinator, Jason Garrett, and in your quarterback, Daniel Jones. And when you don't have either of those in a good position, it is hard to win games in the NFL. I mean, obviously, Saquon Barkley is more talented than your other running backs that you've had there when Saquon was out last year. Um, and I know that you spent some money in free agency and went out and acquired some like Kenny Galladay and you've drafted Kadarius Tony in the first round. But I just don't know the health of those players long-term. They've obviously been dealing with stuff already in camp. Um, and I just don't have a lot of confidence there. This is a team that sort of is built with like the old school mentality with your GM. And I don't know how well that wins in modern football. I agree with you on the other two teams there. The issue that I have with just trying to pick out where teams are going to finish in this particular division is that I think this division overall Every team is flawed. Every team has a hole. And for that reason, it would not shock me if the team with the best record in this division was nine wins at the end of the year. And as a result, I think that it's not out of the question that the Giants couldn't come close to getting into that bunch of teams. But I would rank them third in this division based upon what I'm seeing from some of the most important components here. I like their defense. Um, I like their skill level of their contributing pieces at the wide receiver spot and the tight end spot. Jason Garrett has no clue how to use a tight end, you know, and, and, and so I like the fact that you went out and you've got a couple of tight ends that I think could work, but I just don't know if Jason Garrett's going to maximize what he's doing with these guys. So I am not bullish on this team whatsoever. I'll be honest with you. So basically what you tell me, Warren, is bet the giant under, and I think there are going to be a whole lot of unders for win totals in the NFC East. Fair to say? It's fair to say, I mean, the win total for Washington is not very high, um, but I did take some long shot on Washington back when it was like plus 400 for them to win the NFC East. Well, it's, you got a nice price on that, Warren. I wish I could get plus 400 right now. I wish I yeah, could stay was, that it number. Was, it was one of the first uh, wagers that I made this past off season, And just just as a long shot, because I did not have a lot of confidence in Dallas, um, Strictly because I don't know where their defense is going to be. And if you've been watching the hard knocks, like one of the things that I am doing if I'm an offensive coordinator going up against these guys is I am absolutely forcing Parsons to cover somebody in the slot. I mean, this guy has gotten torched in a couple different episodes now, once by a fullback, once by a wide receiver in the slot. He still doesn't seem like he understands his responsibilities. The coaches in last night's Hard Knocks episode were trying to work with him a little bit on what he's supposed to do in the slot. He admitted that he never did that much at Penn State. So I just think that um, he's a guy you can try to figure out how to take advantage of him uh, on some key plays. Not that that's going to be like the single flaw that's going to sink the Dallas Cowboys. I love their offense. It's just, um, you know, I, I think that all of these teams, like you, you know, just said that I reiterate that these are flawed teams. So I, I would never bet the over on the Dallas Cowboys win total. I, I think I went back like this team in their last 15 win totals has gone under, I want to say like, 11 or 12 times out of 15. Um, this is not a team that's, they always get pumped up. They always get hyped up by the national media, America's team, quote unquote, and they are not good to betters at the, at the window. That's for sure. Fair to say with the Jets, more competitive team, the coach will provide a presence and an energy to them. But in an AFC East where you got a Super Bowl contender in Buffalo, a terrific Miami team, 
and a New England team that spent a boatload of money in free agency. Warren, I just don't see where the wins are coming from with the Jets. Like, the Jets could be a much improved team, and they go win four or five games. Like, they're going to look and feel a lot better, but the results may not necessarily be there. I couldn't agree with you more. I th- I love the direction that Joe Douglas has this team pointed. Um, I did not bet their win total over at six yet. I wanted to. I was waiting for the right time because I do think that this is a team that's going to be able to exceed that potentially. But then I saw Carl Lawson go down. I was going to say, Warren, I was going to stop you right there. I was looking at that win total. It didn't move that much off the Lawson injury. That's a killer for them on the defensive line, though. Major, major killer. It, it, it absolutely is. This was a team that ranked fifth worst um, in pass defense last year. This was a team that ranked 20th in pass rush efficiency. They needed to get after the quarterback. I thought Carl Lawson, obviously you're spending $15 million on him per year, was, was a very significant signing that was going to help you guys tremendously along that respect, especially because of the way that Joe Douglas has been building through the draft. He's been going after offensive players, right? This year it was quarterback, offensive guard, and wide receiver. Last year it was offensive line and wide receiver. Like he's got a strategy for what he's been doing at the top of the draft, which means that he's not drafting blue chip guys on defense the last couple of years. Um, and so that's what Carl Lawson was going to help fill that void. And now he's gone. Um, I think your secondary is a major problem. And that's why the pass rush was going to be so vital without him there. It's going to expose the secondary even further. Um, look, you have the biggest um, addition by subtraction thing going on in the in the NFL, in my opinion, by getting rid of Adam Gase. And I don't yet know how Mike LaFleur is going to call games in every single situation because we haven't seen that yet. But he appears to be, from what I've seen, a massive upgrade. And obviously, I don't know what that's a question we talked about at the top. Sam Darnold is going to be in Carolina. I'm so anxious to see him there. I think he's going to be better than what you guys witnessed. But because of getting away from Adam Gase. But Zach Wilson seems to have a much higher ceiling right now than whatever Sam Darnold ends up turning out to be in Carolina. And for that reason, I'm very optimistic at where you guys are from a from a pass blocking perspective, from a quarterback perspective, from a receiving perspective. Like I like the pieces that you have on that side of the football. I just don't have a lot of confidence in your defense. And so for that reason, what I'm going to be looking at for the Jets potentially early on in this season, so long as Mike LaFleur does not try to go ultra conservative, ground and pound, run the ball on first and 10, run the ball on second and long. If he lets Zach Wilson throw the football early in games, which is actually the way that you help a young quarterback, get him to pass the ball when the defense is playing run, when the defense doesn't know the scenario, uh, when the defense is not going to just automatically pin their ears back on third and long. You got to let this guy throw the football on these first downs. If they're doing that, this team is going to go over their uh, projected win totals, a pretty high number of games. I'm talking about, you know, the week one, week two, their over-unders for the team totals, not the over six for the full season. Um, I'm not betting them under at six. I want to go over, but I'm really, I, I was about to do it without that Carl Lawson news. Fair enough. Give me the team, Warren. Most likely to overachieve this year and a team, in your opinion, most likely to underachieve. Look, I'm looking over in the NFC West and everybody's talking about the LA Rams and Matthew Stafford and how Jared Goff sucked and how much Matthew Stafford's going to help this offense. But I'm looking at another team in that division and I'm looking at the San Francisco 49ers. And I'm saying that there has not been a season that, Kyle Shanahan has done poorly as long as he had Jimmy Garoppolo starting at quarterback. And Jimmy Garoppolo is not even this premier quarterback, but yet Kyle has gone 24 and nine with Jimmy G in there. That is despite being the NFL's number one most injured team over the last four years. That is despite playing the number one most difficult schedule of opposing past defenses over the course of those four years. I'm looking at a San Francisco team that has one of the biggest benefits right now that I think any team has. There's a couple of them in the league that are, that are in this ballpark, but most are not even close. And that's redundancy at the quarterback position, which is massive when you're talking about a 17 game season 
and you're talking about COVID still being all around us and players are going to be testing for this, having two quarterbacks that you could eventually turn to. Now, I don't want them to turn to Trey Lance week one because I want them to ensure their floor is high to win some of these early season games. And Lance provides you a lot of upside. You need that when you're coming close to trying to go on a postseason run. You need a high floor to start the season, and that's what Jimmy G gives you, in my opinion, without a lot of the mistakes that I think Trey would ultimately do. But we're talking about pass schedule. The 49ers played the fifth most difficult schedule of opposing pass defenses last year. That's 26th this year. They're going to be going up against pass defenses that they can move the ball against that they're going to have efficiency. We know they always have a good run game. I think their defense is still going to be okay, even with the loss of their defense coordinator. I'm interested. A lot of good things that I'm hearing about D'Amico Ryan's there. Uh, I just think that this is a dangerous team in this division. I bet them over their win total. I think they make a playoff run. Um, I think this is a, a, a much better team. And, you know, a surprising statistic, even though they were without Jimmy G the whole season, more or less, last year, I mean, most of the season, this was the only team in the NFL that finished top 10 in both offensive and defensive early down success. And that's a key metric that I like to look at. Kyle Shanahan coaches these guys really well. I think they got the redundancy at the quarterback position to be successful. A team that I think will fall down this season um, more than other people are expecting them to is the New Orleans Saints. Now, obviously, my thought on them got a little shock when I saw what Jameis Winston was doing, but I'm looking at that against the Jacksonville Jaguars, and I'm looking at that as a preseason game where the defense is playing super vanilla and his wide receivers made a couple of spectacular catches that you can't bank upon, even though Callaway appears to be a total stud, that you can't bank upon over the course of the entire season. What I think that the Saints might be this season and why I think that they could potentially regress a little bit more than what other people are expecting them to is a team that simply without Drew Brees, that they had utmost confidence in and trusted implicitly at the quarterback position, may end up running the football more often. And when you run the football more often, particularly on early downs, this was one of the most pass-heavy teams over the last several years at the quarterback position. When you run the ball a little bit more often, inevitably, you're bypassing third downs less frequently. And the third downs that you do have to go into, those are longer yards to gain when you're in those situations. And that's going to be more difficult for whatever quarterback it is. I obviously think that at this point, it's case closed. It should be Jameis Winston. But whatever quarterback it is, you're going to be in more difficult situations on these third downs, facing more of them as well. That's going to result in more pressures, more sacks, more turnovers. And that could make a big difference in as compared to what the Saints team is used to dealing with. So for that reason, I think that they do take a step back. Now, their win total sort of implies that. I don't know that there's a ton of value if Jameis is playing great. But if Jameis starts to play back more like we expect him to, which is a few more turnovers, um, then I think this is a team that really does take a step back and, and, and does not produce a winning result this season. Well, considering, Warren, that I have the Niners as a potential over, and the Saints as a potential under. This makes me feel quite good hearing that sort of analysis right there. And the final one before we say goodbye, we have a mutual friend. His name is Bill from Los Angeles. He calls the show from time to time. Uh, he has brought me into the Ringer family. He's the best. I love him. But at the same time, I really despise his football team. And his team and my beloved Dolphins are basically neck and neck when it comes to win totals, odds to make the playoffs. So... I need to negotiate terms with Bill from Los Angeles on what our wager is going to be. But I'm going to ask Warren Sharp, who has more wins in 2021, the Patriots or the Dolphins? The Dolphins for me, and I will tell you exactly. I, I knew I liked you, Warren. I mean, this is fabulous. <laughs> you just give me all the answers that I want to hear right about now. Fantastic. I, I, will, I will tell you why. And the reason why I believe that is because of my belief in Tua. And let me go into that. I was on the Lamar Jackson bandwagon after his first season in Baltimore when he got to play a little bit at the end of the year and then he lost to the Chargers in the playoff game and looked absolutely terrible. And the majority of the public was writing this guy off saying that he couldn't do anything. But I looked at the context of what he did that season and the difficulty that he had to do it in. And I was 
bucking everybody. And I was big on the Lamar Jackson bandwagon. He goes out and wins an MVP. Uh, and we bet, we made a lot of money betting Lamar Jackson to win MVP that season. Tua is in a very similar situation from this respect. Think about this. You have a quarterback who is drafted, but he's dealing with a massive hip injury. We aren't talking a small injury. We're talking about almost a catastrophic injury that he's trying to recover from. During a pandemic and COVID, using Zoom meetings to try to learn an offense that was handcrafted for his starting quarterback, Ryan Fitzpatrick, with a coordinator that was familiar with Ryan Fitzpatrick and Chan Gailey, who had been retired from football for years, but was brought in solely to design an offense that Ryan Fitzpatrick was familiar with that they utilized previously in their journeys together. Chan Gailey is a grandfather, comes off of his couch to just call this offense. And when Tua gets inserted in there, now granted, he's not taking snaps with the ones enough in preseason because those are going to Ryan Fitzpatrick to get him ready for the start of the season. Tua is getting backup snaps. And when he does get inserted in there, do they make any changes to this offense like they did for Lamar Jackson when they switched to a run-heavy system in Baltimore and overhauled everything during a bye week? Absolutely not. Chan Gailey's calling the exact same offense that he was calling for Ryan Fitzpatrick. He's not looking at the analytics or the data that's suggesting these are the things Tua is really good at doing. You try to do more of those things because the stuff you're getting him to do, he's not very good at. They do none of that. What they do this offseason then is they go out and prioritize separation. Guys that can get separation from their defenders. They ranked dead last in wide receiver separation last year. They go out, they draft Jalen Waddle. They go out, they bring in Will Fuller in free agency. Guys that are going to create instant separation and easier windows for Tua to throw the football. He gets all offseason this year to be the number one quarterback, take all those reps with number one. And they actually have a good offense coordinator. I have high expectations of George Godsey, who's going to be calling plays for the offense. Nobody really knows who this guy is. He hasn't called plays before. I have no doubt that he's going to do a better job than what Changeli was doing last season. So for all of these reasons, with a defense that still should be above average, probably not as good as they were last year because these things do tend to regress based upon the opponents you play, but still an above average defense. I look at the Dolphins and I think this is a team that A, will have success this year. B, Tua will impress people. All these people wrote off Tua after his rookie season are going to be disappointed because he's going to look much better this year. And then look at their schedule after they play a Thursday night game against the Baltimore Ravens and have extra rest to go in and play the Jets. There are tons of winnable games down the stretch for their season. If they come out and just basically flip coins, maybe a little bit over 500 up through those first 10 weeks, they're going to produce a winning record and have success down the stretch. Warren, fantastic analysis. Appreciate a couple of minutes. I expect great things from a little wager that I'm going to put together with Bill from Los Angeles. <laughs> and if I end up winning and cashing on that wager, I, I, I will think of these uh, moments of tranquility and this moment of solitude with you in which you allowed maybe some folks who listen to this podcast to also see the light. Continued success. Have a great NFL season. We'll talk soon, all right? Thank you, my friend. Good stuff there, Warren Sharpen whole lot of beautiful symmetry there between the shark and yours truly. That's either a really good sign or a really bad sign for this 2021 season. We'll set the stage for the weekend. Uh, maybe a play or two from our buddy, our pal Jeff Money, and what's coming up next week. It's going to be a very eventful week in more ways than one for yours truly. We'll come right back. So before we hit Jeff Money, Giants, Jets, they'll have their third preseason games coming up. It's taken way too long to get Daniel Jones on the field. Warren Sharp just talked about it a few minutes ago. I wholeheartedly agree. I, I would have liked to have seen him in one of these preseason games. Just because I want to see him in rhythm. He missed time last year. I want him guns a-blazing, ready to go when this season starts, when they're taking on the Denver Broncos, which, oh, by the way, is a team that can get after the quarterback and is a team that can make life miserable for you if you're a bad offensive line, and if you're a quarterback who's not exactly where he needs to be. So, uh, listen, I don't need Daniel Jones to go and throw three touchdowns and, and dominate when I see him in the final preseason game, but I want to see him in a little bit of rhythm. I want to see him rocking and rolling. That's number one. Number two, the Broncos going to Bridgewater, a quarterback, 
should not surprise anyone because it makes perfect sense for what Vic Fangio is looking to do. He wants a quarterback that's going to take care of the football. He wants a guy who has some sort of experience, and they're going to hope that they can play old school, ground and pound, defensive type of football games. And we'll see if that's a recipe for a team like Denver to find their way into the postseason. I think Denver's dangerous. I don't love the conservative nature of Vangio as a head coach, but he knows how to coach defense. That defense is really good. And they got some weapons on the outside. I mean, Corlin Sutton, stud. Judy, who I think will be way better in his second year. I mean, they got some guys who can make plays on the outside. Denver sneaky overplay. Very, very sneaky overplay. Thank goodness this is the last weekend of preseason football. I can't stress that enough. I'm at the point now where it's like, all right, it's go time. And guess what? This time next weekend, college football week one, then the following week, we'll be reacting to the Cowboys and the Buccaneers. So we are two weeks away from the start of the NFL season. Wow. Holy freaking moly. Two weeks away. You can best believe yours truly has the edge. I mean, listen, the Yankees winning 12 games in a row, that gets you high-flying going right in the football season. But I'm ready. I am more than ready. All right, Jeff Money, Friday card. Hopefully, he's not going down the uh, the rabbit hole of NFL preseason games. What do we got, Money? What up, JJ? Jeff Money here with a handicapper picks. This is going to be for Friday the 27th. I got two games. Game of one money play. You're going to like this one. I'm going with your New York Yankees minus the 140 over the Oakland Athletics. It's going to be Cole versus Manana. Cole is 2-1 and one with a 4.24 ERA his last three outings. And Man is 0-1 with a 9.52 his last three outings. So game number one, money play Yankees minus the 140. Game number two, I'm going to take the Toronto Blue Jays minus the 155 over the Tigers. It'll be Mats versus Manning. Mats is 1-1 one one with a 1.72 ERA his last three outings. And Manning is 1-1 one one with a 6.75 ERA his last three outings. A little tidbit, the Jays are 26-13 and 13 versus losing teams. So, again, money play Yankees minus the 140. And we're going to take the Toronto Blue Jays minus the 155. All right, JJ, I'm out of here. Let's go. Well, money, tough to go against the red-hot New York Yankees who look to make it a baker's dozen. For those of you who follow me on Twitter, you know exactly what I am referencing. So I got to ride with you on that. And I like the idea of hopping on Toronto. Toronto opened 155, now seeing it at minus 175. And they're a team that's kind of on like that periphery of the wildcard race. They're basically, what, four and a half games back, three games back of the Boston Red Sox for that second spot. So if they win a couple of games, get in the mix, they could be a team that maybe has themselves an interesting month of September. So I like that play with Toronto. So I'll ride with both of those plays and make it a winning Friday. The Magical Mystery Tour out on the West Coast is actually coming to a close. It's been a wild week. It started in Vegas. Then we made our way to San Diego. And I'll tell you this, San Diego is a hell of a town. Between the gas lamp and Pacific Beach, had a great night in Pacific Beach last night. Music was hopping. They had this, this ridiculous goldfish competition at the Shore Club. For those of you who know San Diego well, it was just, it was like, infusing all sorts of crazy energy in me. So I had a great time there. And I'll tell you this. If I would have convinced Kate that we were going to the Dodger-Padre game, which I almost tried. I almost tried pushing that narrative on her. I think she would have left me in California if I would have made a stay through 15 or 16 innings. And I called our buddy Mike Fliegelman, my old producer, did a fabulous job making his first on-air debut. I had to call him last night. I got I. I actually was JJ from San Diego. It's nice turning the tables on you guys for a change. So I did I did pop on his show uh, late night after maybe a couple too many cocktails in San Diego. And now Manhattan Beach. How about this? Manhattan Beach. I'm watching the Yankee game first inning or two on my phone. I'm having a wonderful meal. Who literally walks right by me as I'm sitting there having dinner with Kate? Frank Vogel. Coach of the Los Angeles Lakers. I should have been hollering, hey, coach. Is there enough basketball to go around between LeBron, AD, and Russ next year? I didn't stop him, though. Normally, I have no shame in those situations. Like, I don't hesitate. I would have been like, yeah. Yo, Frank, what up? I don't know. Maybe it was Manhattan Beach. Maybe I was, you know, a little too late to the party. And I couldn't find him afterwards, which was unfortunate. Because then I was like, man, I should have gotten the pick. Because it would have only enhanced the story that I am telling right here on this podcast. 
So we're back on Sunday night, and we will really be making that dive in to the start of the NFL season. Preseason will be done. We'll have everything covered from a future standpoint with college football and the NFL over the next two weeks. Have a couple of surprises in the works that we are trying to deliver on before the start of week one. So we'll be back Sunday night after the Yankees and the A's. Green room Saturday time to be determined. I think it's going to be on Saturday. Just not sure what time yet. So follow me on Twitter, John and Jastrzemski. Follow on Green Room. You follow on Green Room. You get the notification when we go live. How good is that? Fellas, outstanding job. Enjoy your weekend. I'm back in the Big Apple on Sunday. Back in the New York groove. And you know what welcomes me? The idea of moving. Uh, I'll have plenty of complaining when it comes to that. JJ out. You got everybody.